When you hear the word medicine, what do you think of? Chances are, if you're listening to this in the modern 21st century, you'll conjure up images of pills or surgical instruments. Or maybe you're thinking of serious doctors in scrubs with stethoscopes hanging around their necks spouting the multisyllabic names of pharmaceuticals and of anatomical structures you didn't even know you had. But let's rewind for a second to a different age. The 1800s, say, or even earlier. What does medicine look like now? Sure, surgery is an established practice, and some forms of medication, like cough syrup, are regularly prescribed and used. But you're probably also thinking of treatments like tinctures, ointments, powders, and potions made most often from plants. When conventional medicine didn't look much different from alternative medical practices, practices like homeopathy, what distinguished them from one another? Well, among other things, homeopathy was much friendlier to women. Yet today, the wellness industry peddles pseudoscientific remedies in a predatory way, often under the guise of female empowerment. In this episode, we take a dive into the past, turning to the UCSF Library Archives to help us understand the complicated relationship between homeopathy, alternative medicine, and feminism from the 1800s to the present day. This, 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 this is Carry the One, Carry the One Radio, the science podcast, igniting scientific curiosity, the University of California, California, San Francisco. Hi everyone, and welcome to Carry the One Radio. I'm Deanna. And I'm Ben. Today, you'll hear from a handful of voices on the really complicated relationship between mainstream Western medicine and complementary and alternative medicine abbreviated C-A-M, or CAM. We're going to start at the beginning, with the rise of homeopathy in the United States. But before we get there, we want to get some perspective on the importance of archives, especially at a medical institution like UCSF. This is the first episode we've done here at Carry the One that draws heavily from archival research. To learn more about the archival process, we spoke to Polina Ilieva, UCSF archivist. We interviewed Polina at an event at the UCSF library back in February of this year. Archivists preserve the past for the future. They preserve and provide access to records of human experience. And archives are unique and irreplaceable materials um, and heritage that is passed from one generation to the other. The archivists survey society, but we also collaborate with multiple communities. We select, preserve, and make accessible primary sources that document the activities of institutions, communities, and individuals. And archival resources can um, serve many purposes, including providing legal and administrative evidence, protecting rights of individuals, and also holding individuals and institutions accountable. We were curious how Polina became an archivist. Growing up in the former Soviet Union, Polina thought of archives as swamped in bureaucracy. In order to access archival collections, one needed letters of recommendation and institutional approval. Archives were not in open access. Then in 1997, I moved to the uh, US. I started volunteering at the Museum of Russian Culture in San Francisco. So this is how I started in archives. I fell under the spell of archives and a mission of what archives do. Now, she spends her time acting not only as an archivist, but as an activist, helping to shape the way our society understands the past. 
We as a society um, can't move forward without understanding and evaluating our past in order to avoid repeating mistakes. And the goal for archives is to serve as means for achieving social justice and social equity. And in order to fulfill that goal, archives, including UCSF archives, have been collaborating with numerous communities and stakeholders to diversify the historical record that we preserve. And for more than 150 years, um, UCSF archives have been collecting uh, materials documenting UCSF history, history of Bay Area healthcare institution, history of AIDS epidemic, public health, and social movements. And our, we can see archival records as building blocks of human memory that can be used to help bind societies together and also as tools for reconciliation. And by preserving uh, records of healthcare providers, researchers, and clinicians, we are preserving uh, scientific heritage of our nation. But how do archivists choose what to preserve? Yes, uh, it's, um, it's uh, an amazing question and uh, that we think about um, all the time because the decision we make in appraisal and collection development impact what kind of primary sources are available for researchers. And one of the vital questions for archivists in health sciences archives is how to build a balanced collection that reflects views of all sides participating in healthcare. A collection development approach that was adopted by UCSF archives generates holdings with primary sources that facilitate creation of a historical narrative that incorporates all of those impacted and allowing for the examination of all facets of healthcare. And this approach aims to address silences and gaps that exist in healthcare narrative. How does she go about addressing these gaps? So we strive to collect records and stories representing diverse issues that community are faced with, including poverty, racial and socioeconomic segregation, healthcare inequalities, public health, social, uh, uh, sexual education and prevention, disparities in healthcare response. And through educational and outreach events, events like this one, we strive to enable and empower often marginalized and underrepresented groups to make decisions about what should be collected to ensure that community members are equal partners in the projects uh, preserving their uh, archives. We are working on removing barriers in reaching a goal of becoming a trusted repository for the preservation of lived experiences of diverse communities that includes healthcare providers, researchers, patients, families, and advocates. So much of what we know about the past comes from the hard work of many, many dedicated archivists, assembling the accounts, materials, and voices of countless individuals come and gone. There's one particular figure who you'll hear more about shortly, whose personal letters, diploma, medical kit, and more are all available for viewing at the UCSF Library Archive. But first, let's rewind to the end of the 1700s and the rise of homeopathy in the United States. You may not love seeing the doctor nowadays, but here in the 1700s, that would be even more the case. Beyond icy cold showers, leeching, and blistering, quote-unquote regular medicine of the time relied on concoctions like burdock blood bitters. 
made from burdock root, yellow dock, dandelion, senna, cascara bark, and a few other plant extracts. Now, many plants have powerful medicinal properties, and much of modern discovery is still made by testing the natural substances produced by organisms like plants for any kind of therapeutic potential. But in the 1700s, there wasn't really a reliable way to test whether or not these plant-derived medications were actually helpful, or whether they were inconsequential or even harmful beyond anecdotal evidence. Methods to evaluate drugs like clinical trials or animal testing were not the norm when it came to judging the efficacy of drugs. So people kind of just relied on what had seemed to work in the past, even if nothing more than the placebo effect was at play. That's not necessarily to badmouth the placebo effect. There's a lot to be said about it as a genuine sort of medicine, but we'll talk about that later. Right, but the point being, nobody really knew if these medications actually worked. If you felt better after using it, that's all that mattered, whether or not the drug actually had any biologically meaningful effect. This kind of anecdotal, word-of-mouth, wishy-washy type of medicine let a lot of forms of treatment that are now completely discredited flourish. One example is, of course, homeopathy, which exploded in popularity when it first came onto the scene in 1796. Homeopathy was seen as a gold standard kind of treatment, with well-reputed medical colleges dedicated to training physicians in the arts springing up all across the country. But what is homeopathy? Well, homeopathy as a practice was created by German doctor Samuel Hahnemann. During his first 15 years as a physician, Hahnemann struggled desperately to make a living. One day, however, he made a discovery. He knew that those who took cinchona, or the bark, in other words, quinine, when struck with malaria, recovered. But he noticed that the bark produced all the symptoms of malaria, but not so intense. This gave him an idea, that of like cures like. And he really took this idea and just ran with it. He started testing all sorts of substances and concoctions on healthy people, showing that small doses could recreate the symptoms of the diseases and conditions that the medications were designed to treat. But one aspect of homeopathy rubbed quote-unquote regular doctors the wrong way. Hahnemann thought drugs should be given in the smallest possible dose to provoke just the tiniest of symptoms of the disease being treated. So naturally, he started to dilute the remedies, and then he kept diluting and kept diluting. By his fourth dilution, the ratio of the active ingredient to the solution would be 1 to 100 million. It's hard to conceptualize what such huge numbers might mean, but hopefully this puts it into perspective. At such dilutions, there isn't even a single atom of the substance in a dose of the treatment. But he thought dilution made the treatments even more potent because the solution held some kind of dematerialized essence of the original treatment. And I mean, that's something that we know now. But at the time, as we mentioned, no one was going around and really seriously evaluating how these medications worked and whether there actually was any scientific merit to them. To Dr. Hahnemann, who to his credit did some kind of rudimentary and albeit not very rigorous testing, it seemed like they worked, and he published his findings widely. The idea caught fire in the medical community. It's pretty easy to discredit these ideas now on the basis of being scientifically shaky, but homeopathy was attractive because of more than just what was considered a pretty solid scientific foundation at the time. That's right. I think there's this fairly accurate stereotype nowadays that medicine is sterile and kind of rigid, sort of impersonal. Because overworked doctors are often pressed to find diagnoses as quickly as possible, patients tend to be viewed as data points rather than as people with lives outside what's on their chart. I feel like there's a movement now to cultivate deeper, more humanizing interpersonal interactions between doctor-patient, but doctors are still overworked, hyper-stressed, and under constant pressure, and these conditions just breed these kinds of impersonal interactions. 
This is particularly a problem nowadays, but doctors back in the 1800s and 1900s were certainly not immune to this pressure, and doctor-patient interactions were already starting to falter. Homeopathy kind of picked up that slack. It emphasized a holistic approach that involved taking a detailed history of the patient, getting to know them, and figuring out the intricate subtleties of both their illness and their lives to prescribe a more personalized treatment regimen. As homeopathy grew in popularity, homeopathic medical colleges started to spring up around the country. One of these institutions was established in San Francisco, the Hahnemann Medical College of the Pacific, which later emerged with the University of California. At the time, it was one of the few medical schools in the United States that accepted women. Most medical schools only accepted men. Right. The reality is that in the 1700s and into the 1800s, conventional medicine was male-dominated. Stereotypes about women being fragile and delicate meant that they were seen as unsuited for the hard work of being a doctor, and they were pushed towards more feminine caregiving roles like nursing and midwifery. But by the 1850s, ladies' physiological societies began to appear in liberal circles, raising women's consciousness about their bodies, wellness, and forms of nature-based healing. Homeopathy was closely associated with other liberal movements of the time, like temperance, suffrage, and abolition. These perspectives were embedded in homeopathic colleges of the time, giving women an avenue for conspicuous leadership and breaking down barriers faced by women in American medicine. Let's take the example of Clemens Lozier. In 1860, this noted feminist and suffragist began giving lectures from her home for local women interested in health and physiology. Her circle and her influence grew, and in 1863, she founded the New York College of Medicine and Hospital for Women. Although it was one of the earliest medical schools for women in the country, it was not the first of its kind. Boston Female Medical College was founded in 1848. Even though there were only 98 graduates in total, it operated successfully for 26 years and graduated the first black female doctor in the U.S. Today, the traces of these institutions still exist. New York Medical College for Women is now New York Medical College and is not a homeopathic institution. In fact, most surviving homeopathic colleges were absorbed into or transitioned to institutions that practice conventional medicine, like the Hahnemann Medical College of the Pacific's merging with the University of California. That brings us back to San Francisco, a place near and dear to our hearts. Amidst the growing acceptance of women in quote-unquote unconventional forms of medicine, Florence Saltonstall, or as she would come to be known, Florence Nightingale Ward, decided to enroll, describing her main causes in life as heaven, homeopathy, and women's rights. And we know quite a bit about her, thanks to the UCSF Library Archives. Yes, so in 2011, we received a call from Dr. John Erskine. Um, Dr. Erskine uh, was a grandson of Florence Nightingale Ward, and um, at that time he already retired. Um, and he had this material and was looking for a home for them. So we met with him several times, and at the end, he has donated to the archives several um, homeopathic medical kits, his grandmother's diploma from 1888, as well as her correspondence uh, dating back to 1879 through 1919. Um, unfortunately, uh, Dr. Erskine passed away last year, but we serve as a repository for this knowledge, and we are really happy to provide access to this amazing collection. Florence Saltonstall grew up in urban San Francisco in a well-educated middle-class family. She was drawn to homeopathy because it was one of the few medical fields in which women could regularly practice. 
She considered homeopathy a liberal social movement that could inspire and empower women. She was passionate about establishing safer medical care for women and developing techniques to make childbirth less painful. And she was quite successful in doing so, and was very popular with her patients. One of her patients even wrote her a poem. Dear Dr. Saltonstall, with her bonny face, with her winsome smile, and her form of grace, and that wonderful thing in women, a voice sweet and low, do you know we love you? As from cot to cot you go, from one room to another, bending over the sick, with your soft fingers, cooling pulses quick. Oh my, Dr. Saltonstall, do you wonder, dear, that we think you are an angel straight down to us here? It was at Hahnemann College of the Pacific that she met James Ward, then a professor of gynecology who would go on to become the president of the Board of Health of San Francisco, and her husband. They were a high-powered couple. Entertainingly, the headline that announced their marriage in the San Francisco Chronicle was, Two Doctors Agree. She gained quite a bit of renown for her work. She helped lead the American Institute for Homeopathy alongside other women, traveled through the biggest and most male-dominated surgical clinics across Europe, and was often the only women in the operating room. Yet, the question of gender inequity in medicine frustrated her. She was very adamant that sex shouldn't determine a person's ability to practice medicine, and is quoted in the newspaper saying, This ceaseless, tiresome question of sex, sex, sex is the bane of the 19th century. One does not enter the ranks of medicine as a woman or as a man. One is simply an impersonal being, a seeker after knowledge, a concentrated mind working in conjunction with other minds, entirely regardless of sex. Against all odds, she was actually able to found her own hospital in 1907, which was staffed entirely by women and provided a training and treatment environment centered around women's care. She ran this hospital successfully until her death in 1919. Clearly, she was a superstar both in her own right as a medical practitioner, but also as a leader for women in a male-dominated field. But without homeopathic institutions, it's not clear whether she had been able to make it so far in the medical establishment. Homeopathy provided an inroad to medicine for women who were otherwise shut out. But over time, as conventional medicine developed into a more evidence-based practice, the gulf between homeopathy and orthodox medicine widened significantly. Scientists and doctors began actually conducting controlled tests to see if their medicines worked, and they pretty quickly figured out that homeopathy was shaky, scientifically speaking. So the mainstream medical establishment absorbed formerly homeopathic institutions and became more welcoming to female practitioners in the process. Although homeopathy fell out of fashion, certain aspects of this form of alternative medicine remained appealing. From its founding, homeopathy valued things like personal interaction and personalized medicine that people nowadays caught up in a complex and mechanical medical system really crave. So today, it's made something of a resurgence. Okay, so as scientists, homeopathy and alternative medicine are not the easiest things to defend. But like it or not, it's back. We have to consider, might there be a place for complementary and alternative medicine, or CAM, alongside conventional medicine? After all, it's not entirely without benefits. To get some perspective, we spoke with Tiff Ting, former medical assistant and future doctor, who, full disclosure, also happens to be my wife. My name is Tiff Ting. I'm a first-year medical student at University of Rochester. So I worked in a private practice for about six years. It was a GI or gastroenterology private practice, although we also had a number of hepatology patients. 
most of our patients were Chinese speaking since we were a Chinese speaking clinic. So we served Mandarin speakers and Cantonese speakers in the South Bay in California. I think the use of alternative medicine, um, specifically traditional Chinese medicine, which is what we often saw, can be very similar to patients who use things like supplements and vitamins. So we have many Western patients who would come in and they took collagen supplements or they took red yeast supplements. And I see traditional Chinese medicine or alternative medicine as kind of similar to that. It's actually quite nice for people who use traditional medicine because they often do have an authority figure who's trained like an oriental medicine doctor or an herbalist who has some kind of training who can actually guide them to take these things um, based on what they need or what they're trying to do. Um, as opposed to people who just shop for supplements and actually don't have any guidance for that kind of thing. Using alternative medicine alongside regular medicine can help with patient empowerment. There's suggestive evidence indicating that a loss of control in their medical outcomes is a major contributor to patient stress and even negative health outcomes. If conventional medicine doesn't have reassuringly effective therapies for certain conditions or diseases, homeopathy or other forms of alternative medicine can provide something for patients to turn to all the more important if patients feel like they're falling through the cracks. I think it does serve to help assuage the patient's fears a lot of the time. Since we're in GI, a lot of the things, a lot of the issues that people are bringing in are so-called functional issues. So someone might just have um, constipation regularly, not because, that they, not because they have cancer, not because they have Crohn's, but that's just a part of you know, who they are and how their body works. Um, and it's something that they can just use along with diet and exercise um, to work towards having a more productive lifestyle and more comfortable lifestyle in terms of their GI health. So I think of it as a relatively synergistic thing. And as we mentioned when we were talking about homeopathy, alternative medicine tends to be more personal than the current Western standard. I think the thing about traditional Chinese medicine, a lot of times that it's tailored for you. So you're not just getting you know, 500 milligrams of something very common or the typical standard insurance um, approved dose of something that everyone else gets. What they do is they listen to your list of concerns and they will personally tailor a cocktail for you that's specific to your concerns. Um, I think that's a really good thing that they do that's so personalized to your situation as opposed to um, a physician in Western medicine just prescribing something that's been vetted by insurance or even if they do prescribe something more particular, which I've seen based off of patient's weight um, or the patient's situation, um, the patient because of insurance has to end up going and get, going to get the standard dose anyway. So the fact that traditional medicine is so specialized and tailored just for you, I think that's really, really good. It's also true that the placebo effect, which we talked about a bit earlier, is pretty powerful. It does engage some pain-relieving pathways in the brain and can help with certain conditions. But this is ethically thorny territory we're in here. A patient getting a placebo can't give informed consent because being informed could destroy whatever placebo effect exists if they know they're getting something that doesn't really work. Plus, studies show that there's just no scientific support for homeopathy. What are the implications of supporting a treatment that has no scientific backing and even no logical basis, given that there's no active ingredient in most homeopathic recipes because it's simply too dilute? 
There's also the fear that patients might use homeopathy and other alternative medicines at the expense of other medicines that may have a proven effect, wasting money and valuable time during which a disease could progress. There are patients who wait because they don't want to pursue surgery. They don't want to pursue chemotherapy because they think it's too invasive or too unnatural. And they want to seek something more natural, like alternative medicine, which has been around for thousands of years. Um, and so there will be patients who put off seeking specialists or put off seeking a surgeon because they want to try something first. Tiff's clinic once had a patient come in with a massive list of symptoms that made the doctor suspect stomach cancer. Our physician was very worried. His primary care was very worried. We were all very worried. But he and his family really wanted to seek alternative treatment. He still said, let me take a month um, and pursue these other avenues first. And if it doesn't work out after a month, I will come back and I'll do the colonoscopy. I'll do the things that you recommended. And we said, you know, of course, we're not going to force you to do it. After a month, things hadn't improved. The patient willingly came back after that, but his disease had progressed, requiring a more invasive procedure. So while the medicine itself didn't harm the patient, having the option ended up causing problems. All that said, in most cases, patients using traditional Chinese medicine alongside Western medicine is usually not an issue. But that's not the case for all forms of CAM. Well, I have zero experience with homeopathy as a provider or as a healthcare professional. I only have experience with homeopathy as a patient or a patient's family member. When my brother was very young, he has um, intellectual and developmental disabilities. My parents took him to a homeopathist. And I remember going to that appointment with them at the homeopathist's house in Palo Alto. It was not a clinic. It was not an office. It was not even... Um, like an office building or anything commercial it was clearly a residential place. And it was a very extremely long appointment with the homeopathist, which I think my parents appreciated since it seemed kind of like a counseling session for them also. I don't remember what my brother took. I have no idea. I just remember my parents found him because the homeopathist had written a book. And in the book, he talked about a boy with autism who he completely cured and my parents were very hopeful about this, and that's how they found him. So what came of it? Well, after over a year of going to the homeopathist, Tiff's family decided it was too inconvenient, too expensive, and at the end of the day, it just wasn't working. A lot of practitioners of complementary and alternative medicine tout their products and services as the only solution, or genuinely helpful or scientifically based. It can really distort a patient's trust and point of view. And that's where the business of it comes in. There are some small-scale cases like the homeopathic practitioner Tiff's brother saw, but it doesn't stop there. There's also larger-scale examples, whole wellness empires based on what amounts to empty promises. I had an exorcism. Oh, wow. I went through years of therapy in about five hours. I started to feel like a panic attack coming on. She knew something that my husband didn't even know. You want to talk about the vulgar? Naked <laughs> in a room with a bunch of women? I don't know if I have the gut. This is dangerous. It's unregulated. Should I be scared? 
That was a snippet from a trailer for Goop Lab, a documentary of sorts that showcases the nuts and bolts behind Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's well-known alternative medicine brand that sells everything from vaginal eggs made of stone designed to strengthen the pelvic muscles to a $200 gold face sculpting bar, whatever that is. Goop is a particularly egregious example of how alternative medicine has taken self-empowerment and care and spun it out of control. It's become a business, a big business, and companies and self-help gurus and all manner of entrepreneurial spirits are taking advantage of this newest wave of enthusiasm for alternative medicine. The truth is, Goop is just riding the wave. It's funny you mention a wave because the popularity curve for complementary and alternative medicine follows this kind of shape, almost like a U-curve. In the past, technological limitations made it such that herbs and oils and all these more wishy-washy treatments were the gold standard. Then medicine got a makeover. It became all about surgery, pharmaceuticals, and detailed anatomy. All things hard science. Alternative medicine became just that. Alternative. Nowadays, it's back in vogue for all the reasons we talked about, like patient empowerment and a growing disconnect between doctors and their patients. Exactly. This is the new wave. And like we said, companies are taking notice. However, not much has changed. These supplements and ointments and what have you that are being marketed to have supposed medicinal properties are still just as scientifically shaky as their 16th, 17th, 18th century counterparts were, with just as little in the way of validation by the scientific process. But most nefariously, modern-day CAM is doing so knowingly. Right. The demographic that's targeted most heavily by CAM hawkers and practitioners are women, especially women that are mothers, wealthier, and white. In fact, if you check out the Goop trailer, which you'll find linked in the podcast description, everyone is overwhelmingly white, seemingly upper class, and wholeheartedly intrigued by and over the moon about whatever latest product for smoothing vaginal wrinkles or detoxing agents is touted. It's insulting, honestly, that they would portray women as so gullible and easily persuaded. Right, and not only are marketing schemes such that they can afford to charge exorbitant prices for products of dubious efficacy, but it does women a disservice by pairing real medical problems with treatments and therapies that have no medicinal value. They claim that these kinds of therapies aren't intended to hamper the relationship between women and their doctors, women are free to receive whatever medical care they'd like, but if it were up to these companies, short of actively putting women on their deathbeds, they would be content if women only sought care for their medical needs from the company website, as neglectful as that might seem. And sometimes, these medical problems aren't even real. Goop sells products that they claim cure diseases like postnatal depletion or adrenal fatigue. They're pathologizing women for things that are part of everyday life, and especially the everyday life of a mother, like feeling tired or sexually run down. And then they sell them the products that are the supposed cure. Okay, we got a little heated. It's just particularly stark to think about Cam in the context of its origins. Homeopathy and alternative medicine back in their initial heyday were often niches in which women could both receive and provide medical care that prioritized their needs. As per the cliché, it was by women for women. In fact, a lot of alternative medical practices that companies like Goop capitalize on are lifted directly from women-led indigenous and ancestral healing practices, practices with cultural importance. To learn more, we spoke with Melissa Bautista, so my name is Melissa Bautista. I am the assistant director um, for the Multicultural Resource Center here at UCSF. When you're thinking about folk healing um, and ancestral practice, it's usually passed down through the matriarch, right? And I'll speak in the context of the Philippines. Um, it's 
matriarchs were the leaders, right? There were these poet priestesses and these healers um, of society. And then you take in like Spanish colonialism and US imperialism and it shifts. While the therapies themselves can be scientifically questionable, their use isn't necessarily the problem. A bigger issue is how they're peddled, reframed, and appropriated by companies specifically to make money. Um, because I think often what we see is like spiritual capitalism, right? Yeah. We see folks that are taking these um, rituals and practices in medicine and, and they're turning it for capitalistic gain. Even things such as um, like Palo Santo or White Sage, you know, these are endangered like living plants and I feel like I haven't talked about the land all of um, I think what folk medicine and healing ancestral indigenous, indigenous medicine and healing practices it's all connected to the land and to the different elements right but you look at things like that you go to Urban Outfitters and then, you know you're selling overpriced medicine um, for like $8 a bundle actually Urban Outfitters sells white sage for $20 a bundle 20 bucks in contrast to its origins, modern-day CAM claims the same space, but it can be exploitative, damaging to self-esteem, wallets, and oftentimes to physical and mental health. It's the very opposite of the empowering feminist niche that it was born as. It is frustrating, but let's try to cool the jets for a moment, because CAM can be very exploitative for women, but there's a middle ground. CAM also consists of things like yoga or acupuncture that... While they can and often do exploit women for financial gain, have amassed a huge following and are in many circles considered legitimate forms of medicine. There's even research that suggests that some of these forms of CAM have real and discernible health benefits. It is true that acupuncture has been shown to help back, neck, and knee pain, even if it's unclear why, scientifically. Yoga, too, has been shown to lower blood pressure, which can stave off heart disease and improve general well-being. And reputable institutions and organizations around the globe are catching on. The National Institutes of Health, alongside 50 institutions around the United States, have dedicated money to studying CAM, and UCSF is no exception. While UCSF doctors work to incorporate aspects of CAM into patient care through integrative medicine, Melissa is bringing these practices to the UCSF community through the Multicultural Resource Center's Wellness Series. It's rooted in indigenous and ancestral medicine practice and ritual. Um, and it's also to provide the opportunity, right, um, for students and staff here at UCSF to really gain access, um, that we can have conversations around um, the historical legacies of oppression, right, that impact um, our livelihood and our ability to live and to thrive well. There isn't only one way that we can heal or we can look at medicine. I think that's a lot of what like alternative healing does is that it, it looks at it holistically and there's a relationship to the person, there's a relationship to the land and, and taking into consideration all of these like elements that play into it. And that healing isn't happening in isolation. So in these wellness series, it's introducing, you know, students and staff and faculty who ever attend um, to these practitioners with the hopes that they're able to develop those relationships. We're seeing that there's a need um, on the student side, and then you have folks on the staff or faculty side that also see that need, mm -hmm. that are really here to really shift and change culture. But I think we are existing like in a, a paradigm that is really rooted in scarcity. If they have this, if they have this alternative way of healing, that they're not going to need me. It doesn't have to be 
this or, it can be this and. Through programs like the MRC's wellness series and disciplines like integrative medicine, there is a way forward for CAM within the medical establishment, in a way that respects and honors its origins. The goal now is to marry the positive aspects of CAM, patient empowerment, personalization, real health benefits wherever they may exist, with protection for consumers, women or otherwise. With so much risk of exploitation, practitioners, consumers, and regulators alike need to stand up and take notice. This episode was written and produced by Deanna Nikula and myself, Ben Matsky, with help from the rest of the team at Carry the One Radio. We'd like to thank Polina Ilieva for her expertise navigating the UCSF archives and for bringing us the story of Florence Nightingale Ward. We'd also like to thank Melissa Bautista and Tiff Ting. You can find links to sources and more information in the episode description. Tune in later this month for a new installment of our Young Scientist Spotlight series. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please tell people about us. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash carry the one. Just a dollar a month goes a long way and would be a huge help. And if you feel like spending the big bucks, $3 will get you some great stickers. We want to thank this episode's science producers, Sama Ahmed and David Cabral, for supporting us at the $10 a month or higher level. With your support, we can expand our podcasting operations to bring you more content and improved audio quality. We'd also love to have the opportunity to teach science communication skills to local schools. We also want to hear from you. If you like or love our podcast, leave a comment or a review. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook and start a conversation. We have more info on our website and over 110 episodes at carrythewindradio.com. You can subscribe to Carry the One on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, stay stay curious. curious!